Uh, 1 Corinthians 11 is where we're at, and I ask you to turn there and look there. The book of 1 Corinthians is, it's a little bit tricky because it's the answering of Paul of all of the pastoral and Christian questions that the church had. Some of them were questions they wrote and said, please answer this dispute. We don't know how this, how this is to be articulated biblically. Other times, it's complaints that he heard from sort of leaders in the church saying, uh, uh, the other pastors are doing this, or the people are going crazy. Can you sort something out as an apostle with authority? Um, the, the, the chapter 11 is a little bit, uh, we're into the section now where Paul is answering questions that he has uh, heard asked. And what we don't have is the list of questions he was answering or, or the, the, the dialogue going both ways. We just have one side of the email chain, which makes it a little bit difficult, not impossible, but difficult to interpret, which means that there's a, a lot of little places where all commentators and all pastors disagree with somebody. Like we're all a little bit different on a few different points, but the overall um, uh, position that Paul writes is clear. We believe in the clarity of Scripture. And it comes out, but this is one of those passages that there's just heaps of landmines uh, because it's difficult to interpret and follow what he means by certain words and what was it that they were saying to him that sparked this response. And it's also really fun because it's culturally explosive. This is, if this was understood, uh, this is the sort of text that, that, that feminists and egalitarians and uh, the, the LGBT community kind of think, which, which we welcome anybody here if that's somebody here. But, but the, the, if, if they were in going to cancel culture, they would be canceling Paul, especially 1 Corinthians 11, as quick as they could. And so we, in our usual fashion, will blow it up and shoot it out recklessly and pray that the Lord blesses it and uh, encourages us. Amen? Oh, tentative. Tentative. How about I read it, and then we'll give a big amen at the end. <clears throat> now, Paul says, verse 2, <clears throat> I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. Now, if you've been reading 1 Corinthians 11, that's hard to believe that he means that because he's corrected them on so many fundamental things like stop going to the brothel before church. But in, in, in some way, he's, he's speaking of your basic... Uh, articulation of truth and church life in a very narrow sense, he has to mean, he says, you're basically keeping the traditions that I gave to you, but there is some things that need correction or uh, clarity. He says in verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife, or the word in your Bible might be woman, they are the same word in Greek, is her husband, or the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is a disgrace for a wife to cut her hair short or shave her head, let her cover her head. You following? For a man ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Doesn't that clear everything up? Because of the angels. <clears throat> Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. 
Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For if her hair is given to her as a covering, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, do you think? We have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. May God bless the reading of this cryptic but authoritative, pure, inerrant word to us this evening. That's where you give a much more hearty amen. May God bless the reading of his word to us. Amen. amen. All right, let's, let's start kicking in. This, this is a, a, um, uh, uh, well, look, it's chapter 11. It's not chapter 1. It's coming on the back of a whole lot of other things that have been taught and explained by the apostle. One of the things that we've seen every week or every chapter as we tackle new big topics is we see that the culture around us bleeds and finds its way into the church. Now, Paul said in chapter 9, that's okay. In fact, that's a good thing if that means we're more clearly able to articulate gospel truth to sinners. So if in this culture they sit in this shape or in this style or they, 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 they would get up at this time or they, they have, you know, it, it, societies change or they dress differently, they speak differently, that's fine. Appropriate as much as you can to the culture so that people don't walk into a church and think, geez, I've walked back into the old days or I've walked into a group of people who prides themselves on just being so extremely strange. We don't like that. We want to be incarnational and therefore welcome whatever in the culture will, will help us be normal human beings. And yet at any place that the culture in the mindset or, or activity starts distorting gospel truth or, or making us shameful to speak gospel truth, that's the point where that cultural thing, whatever it, need, it is, needs to be stopped at the door and cut out of the life of the church. What we find in 1 Corinthians 11 is that such a thing had happened again in a different way to the Corinthian church. Sometimes bad cultural practices or ideologies sneak into the church through seduction or just carelessness. Sometimes we're just not careful enough with having our guards up and, and we're not, we don't have a mind that is renewed enough by the word. And so these slippery ideologies sort of come in accidentally and here we are uh, believing and teaching according to them and censoring parts of scripture accidentally. Sometimes they come in by force. Like, like the government has an edict. You're not allowed to preach on this. You're not allowed to practice in this way. You're not allowed to worship here or there or anywhere. Uh, it sounded like a Dr. Seuss, whatever. Uh, let's keep moving. Uh, and, so, and in that instance, it's a lot easier to sort of uh, fight because it's out in the open. It's very clear. You know where to stand. Well, churches give in to, all, uh, uh, to things all along that spectrum. But in Corinth, it seems that they were just accidentally not completely clear on, on biblical definitions around gender roles, so they'd accidentally allowed practices that were not helpful for the church. Uh, it also seems that maybe there were some who had been seduced by other ideologies or thoughts, and it actually started trying to bring those into the church, although it's not from a sort of external persecution. And I think the same is with us on precisely the topics that made you not want to shout a good amen like you did with other passages is, is I think, what is happening in our, in, in our, in our world, that, that the culture would present uh, certain ideas around gender, gender equality, gender roles, and the church, and those are either seductively tempted to the church or in, accidentally bleed in. 
Let's just hit the crux of what Paul says. This part is going to be, be the, the real uh, uh, the, the seed of his argument. Out of this, all of the rest of his explanation will flow. He makes a very theological statement here in verse 3. He says, But I want you to understand that the head or authority of every man is Christ, and the head or authority of every woman is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So what we're going to be seeing here as the, the situation that Paul is addressing is, is male and female hierarchy. Now, there's going to be words I use tonight that we're just going to have to get, get used to and find in their biblical places. One of them is hierarchy, that, that God has um, put male and female into a certain order. We'll cover this later, not of value, but of, of rank in terms of how things order, how things work. Males are given as the, the, the head or the authority, and the women the submissive role, especially in marriage, including in the church, and this bleeds out into society as well. Uh, and so Paul's going to be, in the Corinthian situation, addressing that that male-female created order has an effect on what happens in a church service. We can't forget this and check it at the door and just have sort of a, 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 a mini, mini world in here where we forget God's created order like that. In the church, it matters how this is displayed and uh, uh, through practice and belief. Especially today, it's going to be clothing and haircuts. Uh, and we'll just uh, weed through what we believe is to be cultural and what we believe to be eternal principles out of the Word of God. <clears throat> so there's the, the crux in verse 3. He believes... God's design of authority and submission among equals is to be displayed and delighted in unapologetically, not discarded and despised, especially in the worship service. God's male-female created hierarchy should be delighted in by Christians and then displayed to the world unapologetically. We're not sorry for that. We know that it can be misunderstood, and we'll explain, but we won't be, we won't be apologetic about it, and that that is not just at, at, uh, in the case at home, but it has an effect on church practice and worship and leadership roles. He says here, <clears throat> uh, in verse 3 still, and, and uh, uh, going into verse 4, he's saying that there is a God-given authority and submission structure among male and female, and secondly, by discarding or despising those in worship, God is being misrepresented to the culture and the Christian church is misunderstanding important roles. Now, the first sort of, I'm, I'm going to guess, I try, and, I try and preach apologetically, meaning I'm trying to think of what, what our, our, our dislikes of certain things are going to pop up in our minds as humans who are fallen, not entirely renewed, and I like to try and address those so we know what's on the table for discussion and we can walk forwards with a biblically informed mind. I think one of the first things that starts sparking up here that makes you sit really awkwardly in a service like this is that, that, that subjection that we would, you know, I just said, you know, we shouldn't feel like people are walking into the ancient days when they walk into this church. We start talking about male and female headship and authority by God's design. It's going to feel like just that. That's, that's old-fashioned. That's subjection and subjugation. And at that point, if that's the initial response, then you are, more than you realize, a closet feminist. Which is, if you've heard me preach, a bad thing. What God is showing us here is that, is that if we hate the, any idea of authority and submission among equals, 
then we haven't begun to even think properly about male and female in creation or the Trinity itself. The reality is that you can still be equal and yet be put by God into an order of authority and submission. And in case we don't believe that, Paul says in verse 3 that while man is the head of the woman and Christ is the head of man, the Father, God, is the head of Christ. That even in the Trinity, now we are not going to step into any Trinitarian errors tonight and start saying that the Father and the Son are different beings, right? And start being Arians, saying that God the Father is the real God. He sort of created the, the Son before the world started. No, that's Arianism uh, denied and defended against in the early centuries of the church. We're also not going to start falling into a, a, a modalism that says the Father and the Son are the same person, and he's just one guy, no trinity, he's just wearing different masks throughout history. Used to be the Father, then he was Jesus, now he's the Holy Spirit. We're not going to fall into that either. Rather, there is an eternal existence of three being, uh, one being, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the one God, all equal in value, power, and authority, and yet within that relationship, one is Father, one is Son, and one is Holy Spirit. There is an order and a hierarchy and a subordination within the Trinity. Although classical historical heresies are hierarchicalism and subordinationism. We won't affirm any of those in case there's any seminary students blogging right now. Yet there is hierarchy and subordination. And so we are not, friends, above Christ. One theologian that I read this week said it this way, submission is godlike. By, by the, the work of, G, of, of God the Son, especially in his humiliation, incarnation, death, and resurrection, and now his mediatorial work in heaven still, God submits to God. One person submits to another for a God glorifying purpose. To submit to God given authority is godlike. There is nothing insulting or unequal about it. So we need to realize that from the get-go so that we can make sense of everything else that Paul says. God-given hierarchy among God-created equals is a good and glorious thing. When the church and the world, let's start at the beginning, when individuals and from individuals, families, and from families, the church, and from the church, society, the more that we live in line with God's design for male and female headship, authority, protection, submission, and help, the more the family, the individual, the church, and society will flourish. So let's keep on going here. I've got first that we're going to cover the context in Corinth. You please, please appreciate my alliteration here. Uh, I, I spend way too long trying to do this. <clears throat> uh, there's a context in Corinth, verses 4 to 6. There's cues in creation, verses 7 to 10. There is caution from the angels, verse 10. There is clarification of equality in verse 11 and 12, and there is a case from nature. So we're just going to go straight back up to the top, and we've got plenty to go through. I'm already going too long, and you guys just need to do better at keeping up, because otherwise we'll, we'll be here all night. So let's look at verses 4 to 6. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered dishonors his head, uh, sorry, head covered, Dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the it is to, it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, 
she may as well cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Now, the, the, the context here is that Paul is saying women should cover their heads because in the day and age of Paul, that is how Christian women could symbolize their submission and joyful help to their husbands or their fathers if they're unmarried. And in doing that, they would honor their husbands and their fathers. That's what he said in verse 4 to 5. All this speak of praying and prophesying is, is some kind of active participation in the church service. Some people try and limit that to like out in front ministry. I don't think he's necessarily doing that because they're, they're, back in that day, I believe there was some kind of uh, activity going on even from the pews. And so we, we're, we're really just going in the worship service in general where there is some kind of activity or practice among the women, they would, that what they were doing was uncovering their head uh, or having their heads uncovered for the whole service. And Paul is saying women should not do that. The head covering symbolizes submission to husband and men should not cover their head because you're not in submission to, anybody, to, to a wife or women or anybody else in this, uh, uh, in this congregation in the same way. Now, the reason Paul's saying that, which is probably lost on us, is that the women who would keep their head uncovered in Paul's day were either the ladies, basically, who were out on Tinder, right, who were saying, I'm available, look at me, approach me for sexual relationship or romance. They were either saying that, or they were one of the high-class temple prostitutes um, or, or one of the, the, the prostitutes who would service the, the, the city leaders, so an uncovered head in that day was saying, I'm available, sexually keen, I'm, 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 uh, I, I'm, I'm looking for this kind of activity, and I don't mind that everybody knows it. And so Paul says, look, if you're going to uncover your hair like that, then shave it. Just shave it right off so that no one misunderstands that. But of course, he's using hyperbole because to be bald in that day was either because you were a slave the only women who were shaved bald uh, or short hair in the day was those who were slaves or those who were uh, cheating on their husbands and caught doing it and he wanted to publicly shame her. He would chop her hair off or trans women. So we can think of like lesbians, dyke, cross dresses, butch ladies, people who wanted to appear masculine would shave their head in this kind of uh, uh, transgender rebelling against God's created design for them. And so we have a lot of that today. A lot of that will carry over in the way that it's masculinizing for women to do that. Uh, but particularly in the day, the whole head covering business said something very loud. And so he's saying, if a woman will, will you know, strut her stuff and uncover her head in church just because she thinks maybe that, that once you walk into church, social cues go away. Like we're in a whole other world here. We're, we're, we're worshiping Jesus. We don't have to care about the culture. All because she's being intentionally, culturalistically feministic and saying, I despise here the authority of my husband. I'm not under the authority of my father. I'm my own person. I, I kick off hierarchy, submission, and order. I am my own authority. All of those things bring shame to her head, which is her husband or father, but in this context, it's the husband. Sound good? <clears throat> Amen. Now, he says about men, we'll tie all this together with application at the end of each section. Uh, then he says to men that they should not be covering their heads because there's two possible reasons they were doing this. 
in the day of Corinth, the rich well-to-do men would show their, their pomp and their, their well-to-do-ness by covering their head when they worship the pagan gods. That was one of the, the things that the rich guys would do while worshiping false gods in Rome, cover their head. Paul is saying for that reason, either because you're trying to impress people with your position in society, or because you're, you're somehow confusing or bringing as way too close together the worship of Jesus and the worship of false gods, don't cover your head. Or the other reason that people might have been doing this was to show as male feminists that I affirm that neither male or female is, or is in authority over one another. I'm a husband, my wife's more competent, I submit to her leadership, I'm under her. That is an abomination and a shame, Paul says. You are, by having a God-given role in marriage as being the head and authority for the good of the wife and family, by taking that God-given role, giving it to somebody else, when it is not yours to give away, it is yours to walk out in, he's saying if you're giving it to somebody else, you're dishonoring the general, the king who gave you that responsibility. You are dishonoring your head, Jesus Christ, and everybody can see it. It's emasculate, uh, sorry, it's effeminate. It's not good for a man to do that. Now, <clears throat> today's applications, we might ask, with all that in mind, head shaving, head coverings, male, females, pagan worship, what are some applications for today? And the application needs to surround around how each sex should display themselves physically and especially during worship. I think this is really where the application comes. So that men in the worship service, but I pray this is in all parts of your life, true biblical men should project masculinity. Do not be afraid of or, or, or be cowardly towards this idea of toxic masculinity. Where, where Now, there is such a thing as dangerous men and abusive men, but putting that to the side, that's not what our culture calls toxic masculinity. Our culture calls toxic masculinity any tangible masculinity. So I'm saying let's be countercultural blokes who love the word of God, love Jesus, who was a chippy, who yelled at religious leaders who were effeminate or wrong in the Bible, who tipped over tables and preached in a desert. Let's, let's uh, 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 follow in his footsteps and project tangible masculinity with no apologetics, no, no sorries and excuse me's, I'm a man, right? It is good to be a man. It is the glory of God to be a man. You are created a man. Your maleness and masculinity is your God-given way to honor Christ. One of the very clear meanings this will have, though I expect this to have very little uh, pushback in our church, is that no, men should not be walking around in heels and dress and skirt and drag and makeup and perms. That, that, that's one thing that Paul really needed to say in the Corinthian day, is guys, stop cross-dressing, Mrs. Mr. Smith up the back. Stop it. You are a man. Look like a man. But also, men should, in the worship service, project the appropriate authority. We'll get to that in the next section. What this means for women, how should I dress? How should I live and act if I want to be uh, 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 honoring to God's created order? Women should project femininity, not masculinity, and not androgyny that sort of says, I'm, I'm neither male nor female, I'm just me. No, you were created as a female. Project that tender, gentle-hearted, beautiful femininity. And yet, 
Paul's concern, I'm, I'm going to quote a commentator here named Garland, one of my favorite uh, commentators on the book of Corinthians. He says it this way. I couldn't say it better, so I just wanted to uh, quote him. He says, Paul's concern here is that Christians honor sexual decorum in worship and avoid what a culture deems to be suggestive attire. So in our day, head covering may not be the universal sign of whether you are uh, fleshly and sexually active and all of that. Like That's not really going to communicate a lot here, heads covered or not, okay? And yet in his day it was. So Paul's concern is that sexual decorum in worship um, uh, was appropriate and avoid what a culture deems to be suggestive. He's trying to impress on the women the need to project modesty and virtue in their dress. So Paul might look at, at, a, at a scantily dressed woman in the worship service and say, you in the Corinthian day are giving as much honor to God and your husband as if you were head shaven or hair flowing in the wind saying, I am a prostitute. You are worth more than that. You are dearer than that. You have been created for much more than that that is dishonoring to the created marriage and God himself. That's, that's some of what we should be taking from all of this. And then he says to the wives through this that they should joyfully project some submission to their husbands. And now let's look at verse 7. We're going to see he accused from creation. This is Paul showing that this whole idea, male headship, female uh, submission, goes back to the Garden of Eden, the very created order of things. Verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. Let's just do some interpreting there. For a man should not sow his submission to his wife, that is what he means by a head covering, because he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, nor woman, uh, but woman was made from man. Neither was a man created for woman, but a woman for man. So there's going to be four quick principles that we're going to pull out here. And I, I say quick and I hopefully mean it. Uh, uh, three layers with one application. Number one, man is the image of God and his glory, whereas women is the image of God but the glory of man. So what does it mean when we say something is the glory of something? We mean that in that thing, that glory, all the great attributes of the other thing is being shown through it. So God has made man, and especially males, to be on the earth imaging him in such a way that shows his authoritative lordship, dominion-taking, fathering, loving, protective, fighting, producing, working, and keeping attributes. Man is the shining forth. Yes, we're sinners, and that has been marred, and yet Paul still is willing to say it here. Men, you are the glory of God. He wants people to be able to look at you and say, that done looks like an image of a loving, powerful, creating, loving God. That's mankind. And women was not made to be the glory of God, but the glory of man. Now, this also is not an insult, as if I'm saying, and you get the runoff glory from the street. Rather, you are the glory of the glory. That's a, that's a second layer, where man is to, both of us are equally made in the image of God. Man is made to be the glory of God. And women, you are to be met. You are the glory of the man, your husband especially. So that all the best attributes of God, of course, that's all of them, should be displayed through the man. And yet his aim is to be showing those, sowing those, and, and producing those in his woman. 
so that anybody that looks at a man who thinks highly of himself and his wife is neglected, depressed, sad, abused, or brutalized, need to look at that man and say, your glory is diminished. Your glory is in tatters. You are not a glorious man. Whereas a man should look, uh, we should be able to look at a man with a, with a joyful, doesn't mean we don't have struggles, but, but a flourishing woman who loves the Lord, who is walking in righteousness, and we can say, that man is glorious because that woman is amazing. She, where, the, where the woman shines forth the, 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 the best parts about the husband, we can say she is the glory of her husband. This means men cannot neglect women in, the, in, in God's design in order to try and be glorious. He's tied their success and all of their best attributes to the woman. That means we can look at a man's family and his marriage and learn a lot that his godliness and his holiness, despite what he would say of himself. So number one, that's how the glory and the image works. We're equals, and yet, because of this, and this is one of Paul's, this is the argument Paul is making, man being the glory of God means that it's unright, it's against the order for man then to go and be in submission to his glory. Otherwise, it would be just as sensible for God to be in submission to man because we are his glory. Rather, the glory is in submission to the thing it is glorifying so that the wife is in submission to the husband. Therefore, let that be displayed through a head covering in Paul's day looking different today. And man must be uh, not in submission to his wife since he is the glory of God. His submission is to God alone. I hope that's abundantly clear. I'm sure you've got questions. <clears throat> now, next. Again, I said we're going quick. Number two is that woman was made from man, not man from woman. You remember Genesis 2? God created Adam first. And then as he had need for a helper, he took a rib from Adam and made out of that a woman. So that's a part of him, and yet it's from him. And Paul's taking a, an, an order here, saying that Adam is the source. Eve has come out of him. She owes her existence to him. Adam can look at this woman and say, you're me, but infinitely better. You are me, glorified. Took one little bone, a little rib, and you made that this is Whoa, man, that is what she is. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, let's call her woman. And so, uh, uh, and this has some kind of orderly argument for Paul. Man was made first, woman out of him, and that has an idea to, or, or a suggestion towards who should submit to who. But then he says, <clears throat> in number three, woman was made for man, verse nine, sorry, three on my points, verse nine, he makes the point that not only was woman made from man, but woman was made for man. An enormous part, and I find this lacking in so many discussions, an enormous part of male headship and authority is God-given mission. The reason there is authority is because there is mission to be accomplished. Jesus, oh, God, made Adam and gave him a mission. Tend the garden, work and keep it, Extend my glory, be fruitful and multiply. To do that, he realized he needed a helper. God gave Eve, as we just said, made out of him. He gave her to Adam. He did not make her just like he made Adam, put them next to each other and say, have an arm wrestling match to whose mission gets accomplished. He didn't even give Eve a separate mission. 
He gave Eve to Adam. I've heard it put this way. God made the man for the mission of tending the garden, and he made the woman for the mission of tending the gardener. So that we, we do not have God giving a separate mission to Eve and then them coming down like good egalitarian feminists and saying, well, whose career should be sacrificed for the marriage? Who should we get behind and support? Who has the leadership in this marriage? No. Eve's role is to come beneath the man, under the man, around the man, support the man, because that's his God-given glory to accomplish. So we see that a male and female coming together in marriage should see that the woman's role and her mission is to help the man, the husband, accomplish all of his God-given mission on earth. Not without question. This is why she is to ask questions, critique, help, love, direct, pray for, so that she can ensure that his mission is godly and God-given. So, for that reason, since the man is the head of a relationship, leading it on mission, it's not right for the general to be in submission to one of his subordinates. And again, not in an unequal sense. But in their equals, one has hierarchy. Therefore, the man should not have a have an, an air about him in the way he lives or dresses. In this day, it was head coverings that says anything like, I submit to my wife, she's the leader. That was a shame. And therefore, this dynamic in the church should be evident for anybody that's looking for it. Not necessarily announced every service, blokes, put your hands up, women, put your hand down, amen. No, but rather if somebody comes in and wonders, what's the gender ideology in this church? What does God teach about the sexes? It should be apparent that males are given for leadership and that women are given for uh, uh, helping that leader and, and being his glory in marriage, and that bleeds into the church as well. So he says, therefore, in verse 10a, uh, women, wives, wear the head covering so that this can signify your submission. Now, today's applications, how could we bring this to today? Uh, I, I, I think that men should embody a posture in your relationship with your wife, embody a posture that says that you are not passive or submissive. Not passive or submissive, but lovingly leading her to be your glory, to the glory of Jesus. It means that men should not be apologetic about being a man, should not act in a soft or effeminate way towards the woman. This would be, in Paul's day, akin to wearing the head covering. If you identify as a male feminist, repent. That is like wearing the head covering and bringing shame to Christ, who is your glory. Those ideologies cannot blend. Therefore, do not cover the head or be effeminate in that way. And women should embody a posture. And I'm speaking particularly to, to the wives here. Um, with, and with majority young people, that's, that's not uh, the majority of us. And yet, expect this in marriage. Embody a posture that says to everybody looking on that you love your husband, you love his leadership, and you support him. There is not an authoritative disrespectful, combative, defiant, pugnacious nature about you as a woman, as if that is your way to freedom. But rather, as we repeat so often here, the way to freedom is God's commands and design. For a woman that is submission to and lovingly helping the husband, and for the husband that is leading and being an authority over the glory that God has given him in his wife. That should be evident in the church service. <clears throat> then we get... In verse 10b, now women, you should wear this head covering because of the angels. 
And no commentator that I read this week agrees with anyone else on what the heck that means. What does he mean? Uh, uh, he doesn't even give clarification. Wear the head covering because of the angels, right? What angels? Are they here? Which angels? The fallen angels? There's so many debates. Here's, what I th here's me putting together the best of what I've heard from teachers and pastors. When we think of the angels, we think of beings that have been given a position and a role to play. The great fall of Genesis 6 was angels leaving their God-given place of submission and authority and role and mission and service. They left that because they wanted to pursue power and lust on earth. And God punished them. So as an example for us, we should think of the angels and remember what happens when we step out of our God-given realms of authority and submission. Secondly, though, I do believe, as is abundantly clear in the Old Testament, that in the congregational worship of God, angels are present. We're not going to bang on this too much and get superstitious. Don't look around. I'm seeing where, which, which corner do they sit in? Do we have a little seat up the back that they sit in? No, no, no. And yet, I believe wholeheartedly that angels are present in the congregational worship of God. And one thing that we should be, women and men, is we should be sensitive to them, our, our spiritual cousins, if you want, because they saw their brother and sisters, or their brothers, fall in that great fall and be condemned in the judgment of the flood under bonds of agony in the abyss forever because they stood out of their, they stepped out of their God-given authority. We should be sensitive to that so that whenever a woman would dress scantily, show off her flesh, or a man would be effeminate and not lead his wife in an authoritative, God-glorifying way, the angels who are here to witness the glory of God and the worship of Jesus are repulsed and maybe even tempted. We need to consider their example and their presence. Their example and their presence. And then we have a case from nature, which... I think Paul, uh, having made a theological, creational, biblical, and, and even angelic argument here, he sort of lands on culture, on the nature of mankind that produces culture. Look at verse uh, 13. <clears throat> sorry, I've skipped a section which is really important to, to make out. So go back to verse 11. Sorry, just added a, a point to make. But you're doing well. We're almost there. <clears throat> God has been glorified in our understanding of his word. Verse 11 says, this is Paul's intentional clarification that man and women are equal. He says, nevertheless, in all of this hierarchy, patriarchy, and God-given order, there is still equality. Man is not independent of woman, nor is woman independent of man. For just as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all these things are from God. Men becoming chauvinistic, are probably apt to forget that they relied on a woman entirely for the first, not just nine months, but the first few years of their life, where had that woman been taken away, they, as a young male, would perish. Men can look down on women in a way that forgets that they are the life-giving beings of the earth. Without them, there is no sense that men do not need women. And if that man wants to have a legacy, have sons, have grandsons to carry on his inheritance and his legacy, he needs that woman. He doesn't get there without her. So God has woven into creation and propagation of the human species this reminder for men. You need mummy. You need a wife. 
you are not as independent as you might be tempted to think in your pride, abuse, strength, and power. And yet, while chauvinists are apt to forget that they came from a woman, feminists are apt to deny that there is a created order for man and woman. And so Paul says these two things, women in all the prior verses, subject to husbands, that is the glory of a woman to be the glory of her husband, and yet you are the, the life givers. You were made from man, and yet every man since has been made out of a woman. So Paul clarifies that equality, sort of shuts down both um, uh, false ways of, of, of thinking about humanity. We do not believe in independence, that men, you don't need women. We don't believe in dependence, so that your authority, leadership, and mission from God is dependent on whether she lets you do it. You're the head, you're the authority. Take the mission God has given to you and bring her along on it. And yet we do believe in interdependence. Males are the head, females are his glory in submission and help. <clears throat> and then we see, as, as because remember, the, I'm, I'm hitting all of the, 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 the gender ideologies that are, that are the foundation to his argument, but he comes back to the original argument, which was Corinthian women wear a hat during worship. And so he says in verse 13 and 15, just a case from, from nature and culture. He says, judge for yourselves. Just, just think about it. Is it, not, uh, sorry, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? And we all say, no clue. Is that a thing? Did we read that anywhere? I don't remember the covering of the head being a shame or not. But Paul is saying, uh, basically to the Corinthians, if you were to walk into a room and see this, uh, a people gathered, and you were to just see it, what gut reaction do you have as a born and bred Corinthian? He, he's appealing to cultural norms. It's as if we were to say today, you walk into a church, judge for yourselves, is it proper for a man to preach in a dress? Is it proper for, for a woman to, to wear uh, a male attire, head shorn, looking like a butch guy and leading the church service? If we think biblically, we should say, no, that's, 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 that's against God's order. But he's particularly appealing to nature. Now, don't hear him saying nature is this universal principle in this passage which all cultures need to bend towards. Rather, what he's saying is it's the nature of human society to create norms, social norms, around male and female. And those norms can be quite elastic. What is not elastic is God's principles for male-female. What is elastic is how that might be portrayed in different cultures. For example, you walk in one Sunday evening and I'm up here in a skirt, you have full permission to knock me out. And yet, because we know that's effeminate, that's strange, what, what is going on? And yet, if we were in Scotland a couple of hundred years ago, or even now during a, a, a church ceremony, and I'm a 200 kilo uh, bald-headed, red-bearded Scotsman wearing a kilt... Well, you couldn't take him. And that's not effeminate. That's actually something that's manly in a society. Or we went over to the uh, Samoan Islands and 250 kilo chief is standing over his, uh, his, his congregants and his people and he's wearing a lava lava. Maybe he even has a necklace on. We're not going to say that's effeminate. What Paul is saying is every culture produces social norms that reflect the eternal principle of male and femaleness 
as a church, we should conform to those as much as possible so that the world coming in recognizes they believe in two genders, they believe in one created order for those genders, and they are showing me through their life, whatever ideological arguments I have, I look at their families, the women are well taken care of, not abandoned, not abused, they're loved like they are the glory of man. The children are raised in love and tenderness and the young boys are becoming young men and the, the daughters are being shown gentleness and beauty and, and not being uh, cheap with how they display their body. Let us be a testimony to the glorious purposes of God in gender and it starts in a very practical way with how we dress and carry ourselves as male and female in the church service. Paul says, if anyone is contentious, you don't like what I'm saying, you want to start a fight, look, there's, there's no practice, there's no other ideal in the churches of God. Right? There's no other Christian church in existence, Paul is saying, that doesn't have these ideas of gender. Isn't that different today? Is that different today? You don't like what we believe about gender here? You can go down to a church, you say, I know a church down on the corner, they have female pastors. Go down to another church. They don't believe in this male-female headship. They don't believe that guys can't dress as women. They don't believe that chicks can't look like dudes. And we say with Paul, no, there are no real churches that believe that. True churches are true churches that work according to God's order. Male headship, female submission to the glory of God, that is what a true church is. Leadership, how it shows itself, how what it believes about God's created order can define whether or not that is a true church or not. But there is so many who, uh, who would be hearing this, and we might have a hundred questions, but, but ultimately, if, if, if you get none of that, but you are not in Jesus Christ, the ultimate point that we want tonight to communicate is that we all need Jesus. We're sinners, and which means that we rebel against God's order for gender. We rebel against every commandment that God has given to us for righteousness, holiness, sexuality, speech. We're all sinners. And so whatever you would think about what we've covered here tonight, let it be uh, said, let it be sure that before you leave tonight, you make sure you are in a right relationship with God. Repent of your sin. Give it to Jesus. He died for sinners of every kind every kind, those who grew up in church and walked away, or those who have always hated Jesus, or those who, are, who have never heard much before, but here you are hearing the gospel, Jesus died for any sinner, rose from the dead to secure your place in heaven for eternity, and the spirit given to you now, if you would just turn from your sin, believe in Jesus, trust him to be your head, your protector, your Lord, he will do it, he has purchased eternal forgiveness for anyone that simply believes in him, so let's pray. God, without your word, we are lost. We are given to every ideology and cultural norm and sinful way of thinking. And so we bend our knee tonight to your lordship. And your lordship is, is mediated to us through your words written in, in the Bible. I pray, Lord, that we would be those who delight in receiving all the blessing and, and, and giftedness and, and, and leadership and light that you give to us as we walk according to your path. Pray, Lord, that we would think rightly about gender, and if we have questions, that we would just ask them and be willing to learn. We pray, Lord, that marriages would, would be structured according to your God-given design of male headship and female authority. We would see marriages happen and marriages flourish and families flourish.
for generations to come because we believe in your word. And I pray, Lord, especially that the world would see from us, from this little church, would be shining out the glory of your created order and your gospel. Pray, Lord, that tonight anybody who is outside of Jesus would repent, would give their heart to Christ, would be forgiven of sin, and would be changed forevermore to be a new creation in your family and your kingdom. God, we pray all of these things in the glorious, conquering name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.